Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the December 6, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. It's my real pleasure and honor to bring to you climate scientist Michael Mann to talk about the developments before and after the release of his latest book, The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. It's illustrated by Washington Post political cartoonist Tom Tolles. Just in time for the holidays, just in time on Ask a Leader. During the second segment, Jordan L. Grobley, founding director of the Marcaz and Annie Zonefeld, founder of and president of Muslims for Progressive Values, will consider recent assaults on members of the Islamic community and how her organization offers opportunities to engage in our region. Stay with me, thank you. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Professor Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science and Director of the Earth System Science at Penn State. The author of The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines. He's recently completed another book entitled The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. It's illustrated by Washington Post political cartoonist Tom Tolles. I'll vouch for it. It will get you through not only your Thanksgiving dinner, which is past, and your holiday gatherings that may help over these next four years. Michael Mann's tireless ability to be everywhere all the time is reminiscent of the late chemistry professor and Nobel laureate Sherwood Rowland here, formerly from UCI, who padded the world round sounding the alarm about climate change. It took a while, but after a decade, people realized Sherwood Rowland had it all right with the chlorofluorocarbons. Among Michael Mann's many media appearances are the Years of Living Dangerously episode with Leonardo DiCaprio. He's been on NPR Science Friday, on Democracy Now!, and many other platforms. His awards are many, and he, along with fellow international panel on climate change scientists, received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize. Professor Michael Mann earned his Bachelor's of Science from the University of California at Berkeley, his Master's of Science in Physics, and his Ph.D. in Geology and Geophysics at Yale University. And one more thing in his intro, I want to say it's, a, it's not a question, but it's to sort of set the where we are at this point in our body politic, is that Michael Mann, among other climate scientists, they are like the kid who really prepared in the classroom and their hands are waving furiously to be called on. But in the case of the climate scientist, not one moderator in the debates called on the climate scientist. The brain trust in the campaigns that advanced to the November election did not call upon those climate scientists, much to our misfortune. Michael Mann comes to us today from University Park, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Professor Michael Mann. 
Thank you, Claudia. It's great to be with you. Well, I'm so pleased. First, I'd like to direct our attention to Dr. Ralph Cicerone, who passed away November 5th. He launched the first Earth System Science Department in the nation at UCI in 1989. He was the fourth chancellor of UCI and was the previous president of the National Academy of Sciences prior to Marsha McNutt's appointment. Stock taking is also fitting with him because Ralph Cicerone was also a devotee of this college radio station where he used to follow UCI and eater baseball, even when he lived in D.C. Michael Mann, would you please give us a little reflection on your work with him? Sure. Uh, Ralph was a, a towering figure in our field. Um, I consider myself uh, fortunate to have gotten to know him, um, and he, you know, it played a critical role uh, back in the early 2000s um, under the George W. Bush administration when there was um, uh, quite a bit of contrarianism uh, within the administration when it came to the issue of climate change. Or neglect. Um, it's not even contrary. Neglect. It's like benign and, neglect. You know, started out on the right foot. Uh, Christine Todd Whitman, EPA administrator, wanted to do the right thing. But uh, what happened was the Center for Environmental Quality, which was really uh, controlled uh, closely by Dick Cheney, sort of came in and stifled uh, their efforts to actually do something. You know, uh, George W. Bush, you know, had originally on the campaign trail said that he was concerned about climate change, wanted to do something about it, appointed a forward-thinking EPA administrator in Christine Todd Whitman, but then sort of Dick Cheney and his, his, uh, his folks came in and, and, and basically quashed uh, any effort to do something about climate change. Um, but because there was this strain of contrarianism within the administration, um, they commissioned. They did not want to trust the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which had just come out with the report. This is the, you know, the, the largest group of, of scientists in the world who publish um, you know, a report every five years or so under the auspices of the United Nations, sort of characterizing our state of understanding of the threat of human-caused climate change and what it means for policymakers. And the uh, Bush administration didn't want to heed um, the, you know, uh, the, the warning uh, that had come from the IPCC. And so they commissioned their own report from the national, U.S. National Academy of Sciences, an independent report. I, I think they thought that they would be able to you know, commission a report that would be more skeptical <laughs> about climate change. But the chair of that committee uh, was Ralph Cicerone. Uh, Ralph uh, chaired that one of the most important studies ever by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences that came at this very contentious uh, point in our political history. And uh, under tremendous political pressure, um, Ralph Cicerone uh, presided over this uh, extremely careful and thoughtful assessment by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, which ultimately came out with the report that more or less said, you know, what the IPCC reported was right. You know, climate change is real. It's caused by human activity. It's already leading to uh, a lot of bad things. We need to act on this. Um, not surprisingly, a few years later, he was elected uh, president of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences because I think people recognized the tremendous uh, leadership that he offered, the wisdom that he brought to the table. And uh, under, you know, his tenure as president of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, we've had to deal with um, uh, some uh, you know, politically motivated 
motivated attacks um, on the science, on the scientists, including myself. Um, and uh, he stood firm um, in his role as the president of the National Academy of Sciences to make sure that there was support uh, for uh, the scientific community and for the scientists in the face of this increasing uh, political pressure and uh, increasingly partisan attacks on the science of climate change. Um, so he was just a wonderful man, a gentleman, a scholar, uh, everything you can possibly say that is, is good <laughs> and positive about a person uh, applied to Ralph Cicerone. It was a terrible loss um, when, when, when we lost him. Yes, yes. Well, you mentioned about the scientists being in the hot seat, and we've got the another hot seat here for academics. We've got the professor watch list. Are any climate scientists on it? Yeah, I remarked when the list came out that I was disappointed to not be on this list. Um, I know. It's kind a, of a distinction, right? Yeah, this list. You know, it's sort of the usual suspect, a conservative organization that has ties to a lot of the funders of the sort of right-wing noise machine, attack machine, uh, many of the same players who are involved in, you know, the attacks on climate scientists are involved in this larger assault on academia, because what is academia? It's sort of the last bastion of free expression and unfettered uh, inquiry. Um, the principles of academic freedom, uh, uh, academics, you know, have this critical role in our society to play of providing frank uh, opinions and assessments and, and, and thoughts uh, without fear of retribution for, you know, challenging vested interests and entrenched uh, institutions. And that's why the principle of academic freedom is so important. But that also means that academics are a threat to those who don't like free expression and open dialogue and discussion, uh, those who find threatening um, the work of academics that calls to question, uh, again, uh, sometimes the, the, some of the dubious goings-on uh, in our politics, um, the, the, the extent uh, to which vested interests, powerful vested interests like the fossil fuel industry, like the pharmaceutical industry, have this stranglehold on our politics. Academia is one of the few sort of institutions in society where people can still call out um, bad actors um, and without fear of retribution because there's this job security in the form of tenure. Um, <clears throat> so not surprisingly, conservative organizations have been attacking the institution of tenure for years, and they put out these you know, lists like this latest list um, uh, of academics who, you know, are, uh, whose, whose views, whose findings are, are inconvenient uh, to them. So, of course, we were surprised uh, that, you know, that uh, those of us who have been outspoken about climate change were a bit surprised <laughs> that we weren't on the list. But in a sense, that's not necessary because there's a whole attack machine right. that already exists that's led by the chair of the House Science Committee now, a Republican chair of the House Science Committee who's a climate change denier. Mr. There's Smith. already this huge infrastructure for attacking climate scientists. So it's almost like it wasn't necessary. They, they were turning their attention elsewhere. Then they, they had that covered. We'll, we'll talk about lots of, we'll name lots of names uh, a little bit later on. I want to first congratulate you on your latest book, The Madhouse Effect, your collaboration with Washington Post political cartoonist Tom Tolles nails the project. Some of his drawings go back a couple of decades. Kudos for his keen awareness. Other drawings are just for the book. And uh, I'd like uh, to take up some of the concepts in your book, but uh, one thing yeah. is I, 
I'm <clears throat> in my fantasy here. I I see you coming up with a new edition, with an epilogue that brings us through the electoral <laughs> outcome, and uh, and I want to see if I can do this on radio. It sort of have to be on that Washington Post cartoon that he put in. It was yeah. within a couple of days of the election, and he with a there's a caricature of the president elect astride Mother Earth, and it's the caption. The big caption was he's got her where he wants her, and uh, he's having her on his own terms. And then the little sub caption was and she's getting hotter. So it <laughs> it was huge, and, and maybe that creeps into that the new edition because there the the line sort of is drawn in uh, what is heating up with uh, the yeah. campaign and so it's an, the references to Donald Trump are those of a, a candidate <clears throat> earlier on in there so our congratulations on that let's before we uh, have you read the tea leaves and the smoke signals of the Trump transition I'd like to get into a few concepts that you predict this this was I think I, I'm not sure I've seen this before somewhere else but I'm sure it's out there you predict that in 2030 it's just 14 years from now that the toll that climate change will take on health will surpass the current annual number of deaths attributed to smoking or exposure to secondhand smoke. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, one of the things that's often lost in discussions of climate change, um, uh, which often get very technical, and when we do talk about impacts, uh, typically they're sort of abstract. Um, you know, much of the discussion that we hear, uh, rather, when it comes to climate change about the impacts is abstract. It's about polar bears and the Arctic. And, and yet, when you really look at the you know, impacts that climate change is already having and is predicted to, to have if we, you know, do nothing to abate the problem by curtailing or burning of fossil fuels. You know, uh, among uh, the worst impacts is literally uh, the loss of human lives. Yep. Um, in fact, uh, I've, uh, I've used the metaphor of the, the horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as an apt uh, sort of uh, metaphor for the impacts of climate change, because um, every one of those horsemen, um, you know, famine, uh, war, pestilence, death, um, makes an appearance um, when it comes to the impacts that climate change is having and increasingly will have if we don't act. Uh, and the, just the human, the toll in human lives uh, already, um, by some measures, surpasses the lives that were lost um, uh, to tobacco, to the use of tobacco products, cigarette smoking. And so when we talk about sort of the, 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 the immorality, um, I would call it, of uh, denialism, um, the immorality of uh, efforts by vested interests, be they the tobacco industry um, uh, or the fossil fuel industry, uh, their efforts to sort of attack um, the, the scientific evidence, to attack the scientists, to attempt to create the false notion uh, that there is a debate about the impacts um, that uh, uh, their product is having on, on human health, uh, by some measures – you know, the industry-funded campaign to deny the reality of climate change uh, has taken an even greater toll in human lives through the various impacts that, that climate change has had on food and water um, and uh, human health directly, infectious disease, um, starvation, heat stress. One could go on and on. It, climate change denial by the fossil fuel industry has already taken a greater 
toll on human lives than the denial by the tobacco industry that their product was leading to cancer and, and human deaths. And so by some measure, um, it, it's even more immoral than this disinformation campaign that was waged by the tobacco industry decades ago to dispute the impact that their product was having uh, on human lives. And indeed, it may not be too surprising that many of the same uh, front groups and organizations and even key players who were active in the campaign to deny the health effects of tobacco products are today working for fossil fuel interests denying climate change. And as you allude to, we, we, we name names. We point out some of those right, characters right. in the madhouse effect. Well, as for the immorality, I just want to, uh, I thought was a really pithy quote. The New York Times editorial section had this Sunday quoting Henry Paulson. That's the George yeah. W. Bush administration, former Treasury Secretary, and his he called greenhouse gas crisis. It won't burst like the housing bubble of 2008 because, and his quote is, climate change is more subtle and cruel. Yeah, and in fact, one of Hank Paulson's people, uh, somebody from his organization, was present at a conference I was at last uh, week um, uh, that brought together um, public policy people and national security experts to talk about the impact that climate change is having on conflict and the threat that it represents from a national security standpoint. So when you hear people like uh, Hank Paulson, who's, uh, I believe, a registered Republican, um, uh, Mike Bloomberg, um, um, and, you know, conservative Republicans like Bob Inglis and national security experts, when you hear these people coming out and saying, look, we've got to do something about climate change, um, it, it really puts the lie to the claim that this is somehow an issue of the environmental left. It impacts all of us. And, and some of those who are most uh, vocal about acting on climate change are you know, members of our national security community and, and members of the business community, people like uh, Henry Paulson. Right. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Sciences and Director of the Earth System Science at Penn State University. He recently released a book along with his illustrator, Tom Tolles. The book's entitled The Mad House Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. And I'll be sure to put on the podcast summary all the information, but one once you put, pull up Michael Mann, it's easy to find that book, and I highly, highly recommend it for all the talking points that you'll need, as I said, to get through the holidays and on to these four years, because, folks, we are all in a dialogue to, for keeps. Cause, but matching matching his Michael Mann's generous grant of vigor to keep putting this right in front of us because it's been so neglected. Well, Thank I'm, I'm going to hop over one big one, but I hope we can get back to it. But um, you put in your book uh, an expression called Sandy Silencing. This is where climate deniers object to linking a severe storm event vent to climate change. Talk about how that works with how people can cover and analyze a horrific weather pattern that wrecks so much havoc. Yeah, and, and you know we use that term, the sandy silencing, because uh, it's a pun in a sense. Um, it, it has uh, there are two implicit references um, in that expression. One is Sandy Hook, um, the fact that we had this terrible, um, this 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 awful 
tragedy where, you know, uh, 20, more than 20 uh, young school children and teachers had been um, killed by a, a lone gunman um, uh, who had access to assault weapons. And, you know, in the wake of that tragedy, there was at least momentarily, it seemed, a shift in the public consciousness, a shift in our uh, societal discourse, a recognition that we, we have to do something. Uh, about this problem, that we we need you know reasonable um, laws uh, when it comes to uh, assault weapons, and what happened at the time, of course, uh, you saw institutions like the NRA and their spokespeople coming out and and even attacking some of the parents, some of the parents of the school children that were killed, attacking them for for speaking out. Uh, about um, the the problem of uh, you know uh, availability of uh, assault weapons um, and uh, the need to do something about that and, and and that's an attempt to silence. It's a recognition by vested interests in this case the gun industry and the NRA that um, there's a potential for a shift in the public consciousness for a tipping point. Um, where people finally are going to demand action be taken. Um, and recognizing the, the extreme sensitivity at that point in time, the other side, in the most cynical of ways, um, decided to uh, engage in a full frontal assault on anyone who was using that um, uh, to, as, as, a, as, a, as a teaching moment, as an opportunity to talk about the need to do something about this problem. Um, and it's concerted and it's directed and it's, it's deeply cynical. And it's the idea that any time there is an opportunity for advancement on a policy issue um, because of a, a tragic event, there's this immediate, very well-organized public relations campaign to push back on that, to vilify teachers and parents um, who were speaking out about this issue. Uh, and, of course, we saw something similar, uh, in a sense, with Superstorm Sandy, right. where there was this, you know, it, it was a, you know, one of the, the, the worst uh, climate and weather-related disasters in history, uh, 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 land falling, you know, uh, hybrid storm with hurricane-like characteristics, um, uh, a larger um, tropical system than we'd ever seen before in the Atlantic that built up this huge storm surge that just destroyed uh, um, towns along the, 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 you know, beaches along the U.S. East Coast of New Jersey, um, flooded much of uh, uh, Manhattan or a large part of Manhattan, a 13-foot storm surge at Battery Park, New York, um, and uh, did something like $60 billion uh, worth of damage. Um, and we can actually estimate uh, how much more damage it did, forgetting all the other connections that climate change might have had with that event, and there are many, and we could talk about those. There's at least one that is indisputable, the fact that there has been nearly a foot of global sea level rise, yeah. uh, a foot of sea level rise off the coast, rather, of, of um, New York City, wow. um, which has seen an even more sea level rise in the rest of the world because some of the amplifying regional climate uh, factors. Right. Uh, nearly a foot of global sea level rise there um, due to uh, human-caused warming and climate change uh, substantially, um, that meant that what would have been a 12-foot storm surge was instead a 13-foot storm surge. And that additional foot uh, meant uh, several billion dollars more damage, 25 more square miles of flooding and the, along the coast. And there are still flood insurance claimants and other 
you know, residents are throughout there that are still waiting to have the roll back to what it was before the storm. So that I mean, the impacts were really quite huge. Yeah. Well, so the let's go down the oh, there's another one I wanted that's in the book, and we're not stealing any thunder here, folks. There is plenty for us to take away in the and then the all the metaphors, the analogies are perfect for. Oh, and I didn't finish and, my point. Actually, oh yes, Sorry. please do. Um, and, and you know, and there was a similar pushback by climate change and yes. and fossil fuel front groups. Right. Any scientist who attempted to connect in a very reasonable way uh, climate change to the the damage, right. uh, the the increased damage that was done by Superstorm Sandy was uh, you know immediately vilified by the usual talking heads and and uh, paid um, character uh, assassination experts uh, connected to fossil fuel interests because they realized that there too there was an opportunity for a tipping point in the public consciousness that Sandy had sort of crystallized in the public mind the dangers posed by climate change and they pushed back with great ferocity and attacked any scientists including myself for even talking about that connection. You were exploiting these victims how could you? Well you could because it wasn't you weren't exploiting you were making your scientifically honest point. Well, another item in the book is geoengineering. It's something of a fetish shared by climate deniers and high-tech magnates. You make many cases for the limits. Would you offer some examples of how the complexities of the planet make these measures simply ineffectual? Sure. So what we're talking about here, geoengineering, these are massive uh, planetary interventions. Um, The idea here is that we engage in some other massive um, engineering of the Earth system. And and some of these are the stuff of science fiction, or they they sound like it. Um, Shooting particles into the stratosphere, dumping iron into the ocean, um, engaging, uh, putting mirrors in space, um, engaging in all manners of manipulation of the Earth's system um, uh, to somehow try to offset global warming and climate change rather than solving the problem at its root cause, which is, of course, the continued burning of fossil fuels. Um, So the title of the chapter is Geoengineering, or What Could Possibly Go Wrong? (laughs) Because that's really the point, right? The the point here is what we're talking about is the principle of unintended consequences. We're dealing with a system, the earth, that we don't understand perfectly. And it's so much easier to break something than, than to fix it and, and make it. And, and we've seen, we, you know, we've seen so many examples of that. With right. the, the Deep Horizons oil spill, it took us months to finally patch that oil leak at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico that was, you know, created by oil drilling um, in, in, the, in the Gulf. And so we created this problem that we almost weren't able to solve. And in fact, we weren't able to solve because that meant there were months of, uh, you know, uh, the release of, of petroleum into the Gulf of Mexico and permanently destroyed, you know, rare and unique ecosystems. Um, it's so much harder to fix a problem with technology than to cause a problem with technology, especially when dealing with a system we don't understand perfectly. In that case, we were dealing just with the Gulf of Mexico. When it comes to geoengineering, we're talking about intervening with the entire Earth planetary system and hoping, in a sense, that uh, putting particles into space and trying to block out some of the sun or dumping uh, iron into the oceans to try to absorb some of the CO2, take it out of the atmosphere and absorb it into the oceans. While some of these schemes on the surface might seem like a plausible, quick fix, 
um, uh, when it comes to global warming. Uh, as we investigate these schemes further, invariably, we do uncover, you know, unintended potential consequences when it comes to shooting particles, um, these, uh, call, uh, these sulfate particles, yeah. that sort of the same particles that are uh, released in a large volcanic uh, eruption into the stratosphere, and they actually block out some of the sun for several years while those particles are still, you know, remaining in the stratosphere before they fall out. Um, and, and that leads to a measurable cooling of the, of the entire globe by, you know, as much as a half a degree um, Celsius, a degree Fahrenheit, following a very large volcanic eruption. So the principle is, well, you know, why don't we just shoot large amounts of these particles into the stratosphere ourselves using massive arrays of guns, cannons, basically, that shoot these particles um, into the stratosphere. It turns out when you model the impact of that, um, wow, that could offset some of the average warming of the Earth by blocking out some of the sun. Uh, the, the patterns don't offset. The pattern of the cooling effect of these particles is not the same as the regional pattern of the warming caused by increased greenhouse gas concentrations. So some regions would warm even faster, while some regions would cool. Um, the best evidence is that we would shift the circulation of the atmosphere in a way that dries out our continents. So drought would get even worse right. than it would have. if we. Right. And so there are so many potential uh, implications, things that could happen where we would be worse off having done this than if we hadn't intervened at all. Uh, and that's true of uh, literally just about every um, one of these schemes, with the possible exception of one scheme called direct air capture, which we talk about in, the, in, in the, that chapter, right, right. which literally involves sucking the CO2 back out of the atmosphere. And it's extremely expensive because you're fighting the laws of thermodynamics to try to take a diffuse gas in the atmosphere and concentrate it in, in one location and take it out of the atmosphere. It's very expensive thermodynamically. It's very expensive in terms of the cost, the financial cost of doing it. And so that might work and it might be safe, but it's actually a lot more expensive than simply investing in renewable energy, which is the obvious solution, right? right? Uh, it's going on a path that takes us away from our addiction to the very fossil fuels, the burning of which is causing this planet. That's the only foolproof solution to this problem. And it turns out it's cheaper <laughs> as well as safer than most of these other options. But as you allude to, the critics, the, the people who, don't, who believe that we should continue to go on burning fossil fuels, um, whether they're, you know, they believe that because they're tied to the fossil fuel industry or they're sort of just sort of free market uh, fundamentalists who are against all regulation, um, are fond of the idea that, well, you know, we'll, let's not do anything to curtail the burning of fossil fuels, but we can do some other you know, things that maybe could offset the effect of global warming. It's very appealing to those who don't really want to do the hard uh, work of, of solving this problem at its root cause. Um, and, you know, and, and sadly, uh, many of these individuals are tremendous techno-optimists when it comes to geoengineering. It's like, yeah, sure, we could manipulate the entire global environment with particles in, in the stratosphere, and we could engage in all these other actions and control global climate. And then you ask them, well, what if we were to, say, just take proven existing technology renewable energy and scale it up. 
all of a sudden it's like, no, there's no way you could possibly do that. So their optimism is curiously selective right, when right. it comes to the opportunities to solve this problem. Well, as was explained in the Los Angeles Times uh, yesterday, appropriations may no longer be available to support the development of greener technologies. And Thomas Pyle, the Institute for Energy Research, was proclaiming, I mean, this really spooks me, a, quote, reset of generation of failed energy and environmental policies. And this raises a big concern about funding with the GOP being in control of Congress and occupying the White House uh, is the prospect of yet another data gap were funding to be restricted. You've been speaking about the data gap that occurred during the George W. Bush administration, then again during the sequestration of federal funding in 2013. What might you envision, and briefly, because we still have lots more to cover in the short time, but uh, what might you envision in the next couple of years? And how are scientists going to make the case, preparing to make more cases uh, in in the future? Yeah, no, it's worrying. You know, we we rely on continuous measurements to to monitor the health of of the global environment. And NASA, as well as NOAA and other government agencies, perform, you know, essential uh, research missions that monitor the state of our atmosphere, our ocean, uh, our ice sheets, and the melting of the ice sheets, sea level rise. Um, We have all these amazing satellite platforms now to monitor all this stuff from space and to be able to monitor, um, you have to continue to measure. Um, I liken, you know, the uh, the suggestion from some um, uh, within, you know, some of the advisors uh, to uh, Donald Trump that they might defund uh, NASA's uh, Earth Science mission. It's sort of like. You know, taking the thermometer away from the doctor because you don't like the fact that he's measuring a fever. The doctor is measuring your body temperature and he's telling you you've got a fever and you've got to do something about it. Um, One way to sort of uh, deal with that is to just take away the thermometer. And that's sort of what, what they're trying to do here is they don't like the message that the science is providing about the health of our environment, the health of our climate, and the need to, to act on reducing carbon emissions. And so their prescription is to just stop monitoring the patient. Um, and that's we understand how dangerous that would be um, in a medical context if that applied to us or one of our um, loved ones. Well, that's essentially what um, some of these folks within the Republican uh, you know, uh, Party, um, advisors to Trump and uh, conservative members of, uh, of uh, the Congress, uh, conservative Republicans in the Congress, this is what they want to do. They want to defund NASA and NOAA and all these agencies that are monitoring the health of the patient. Um, and we, we, we understand, I think, it's, it's easy to understand at a very visceral and basic level how dangerous that is. Well, let's go down the list of principles that are involved in the Trump transition, and you could talk briefly about them. I know I'm unfairly hammering you with such expansive questions for shorter answers up but talk about myron ebel or ebel uh who is involved in the epa transition work rex tillerson exxon manager with the state department i'm not sure he's probably contributing into other departments in the cabinet thomas Pyle, i've already mentioned institute for energy research and daniel simmons who's the vice president for policy at the institute for energy research that's that's a lot of foxes near the chicken coop 
Yeah, no, it's, the foxes have been given the keys to the chicken coop. Um, you know, let, let's be clear about that. When we talk about people like Myron Ebel, um, who we talk about in the Madhouse Effect, because he's one of the principal characters in the fossil fuel-funded climate change uh, denial campaign. Um, uh, he's associated with the, group, uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, CEI, which is essentially a front group uh, for the Kochs and other uh, conservative funders and fossil fuel industry groups, and has been actively working for decades to try to dismantle the EPA, to do the bidding of the fossil fuel interests by, you know, dismantling the EPA. Um, he tried to actually do that uh, in the, the administration of George W. Bush, um, where there were documents that were obtained by the New York Times that showed that the Center for Environmental Quality <clears throat> had a guy named Phil Cooney, who had previously been with the American Petroleum Institute and was now part of you know, so he was one of the foxes that had been invited in under the Bush administration to um, to not guard the hen house. Um, and uh, Myron Ebel, um, there were a series of exchanges that involved Myron Ebel, um, that he was working closely with these people within um, the, the these fossil fuel-friendly <clears throat> anti-regulation people within the Bush uh, CEQ to try to uh, – dismantle the efforts by the EPA to regulate carbon emissions. And that's because Christine Todd Whitman, a Republican, a moderate Republican from New Jersey, was the EPA administrator at the time right. and had a forward-looking um, view on climate change and wanted to act on this problem. She had declared um, that CO2 was indeed a pollutant and so was, it did qualify under the Clean Air Act to, um, to be regulated as a pollutant. Um, and Myron Ebel was one of those outsiders from the fossil fuel industry that uh, um, conspired with uh, Dick Cheney and his allies um, in the, the White House to oust Christine Todd Whitman and to take over environmental policy within the White House. So he's already had his hand on the inside. So I guess he... It was caught in the cookie jar, and we can be sure it'll be there again. Right. <laughs> well, well. so then anything about Rex Tillerson? He's mentioned as a candidate for secretary of state but he's, he's in there he's in there yeah. in for in the transition is there something specific quickly you want to mention because he's in your book yeah so you know tillerson i mean he's uh, ceo exxon mobil um you know exxon mobil agenda isn't a secret is to sell fossil fuels it's to continue to mine fossil fuels to sell fossil fuels um efforts to regulate carbon emissions they see as a direct challenge to their bottom line, and they have literally spent tens of millions of dollars, hundreds potentially of millions of dollars over decades um, funding the sort of very disingenuous, cynical uh, tax campaign, uh, disinformation campaign to deny climate change, to attack the science of climate change, to attack climate scientists. And as the uh, group um, Inside Climate News, a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, new media organization, had a series of articles over the last year um, that outlined in excruciating detail how ExxonMobil recognized the threat that our continued burning of fossil fuels represented to the planet back in the 1970s, nearly a half century ago. In fact, in one of their internal documents from the mid-1970s, they referred to the potential impacts of climate change as catastrophic. But they chose to hit all that research. Their own internal research showed what the scientists were finding, that climate change was real and a problem. And instead, they buried that research, they defunded that research mission entirely, and spent tens of millions of dollars engaged in a disinformation campaign to attack 
the independent science uh, implicating the burning of fossil fuels with in human-caused climate change. So Rex Tillerson, interestingly enough, is um, a little bit better um, than their previous CEO, um, Lee Raymond. Lee Raymond, the previous uh, ExxonMobil CEO, was an out-and-out climate change denier. He advocated anti-scientific conspiracy theories, rejected mainstream science. Um, He was an outright science denier and a promoter of, of... pseudoscience and anti-science. Rex Tillerson is a little more nuanced in his stance. Um, He, at least publicly, has acknowledged that climate change is real and at least partly human-caused. Well, the fact is that it's entirely human-caused. All the warming we've seen, we know, uh, is explained by fossil fuel burning, increased greenhouse gases from fossil fuel burning and other human activities. But he sort of takes this view that, well, you know, there's something there, but, you know, it's not nearly as bad as the scientists are saying, and we can just adapt to it. Or, you know, we could engage in some of these geoengineering schemes. So in the end, the stance is still once of de- uh, one of denial. It's denying the very clear evidence that the impacts are already uh, severe and will get much more severe if we don't you know, reduce our carbon emissions. It's maybe not denying the basic physical science in the way that the previous CEO, Lee Raymond, did, but the bottom line is the same, a denial that this is a problem that we really have to do something about. Now, that having been said, there's a little bit of discord or um, sort of um, almost uh, schizophrenia within ExxonMobil, because at the same time, if you look at their long-range business plan, there is an acknowledgement of uh, the likelihood of a price on carbon, um, that, you know, that we will put a price on carbon to regulate the, the burning of fossil fuels. And in fact, they estimate a price of about $60 per ton of carbon. That is twice what the Obama administration had cited as the current sort of cost of uh, burning, the social cost of carbon, the damage that uh, burning of carbon is doing to the planet. They had priced it closer to $30 per ton of carbon. ExxonMobil has uh, in their own, uh, you know, documents, an estimate that's twice that large. So if you're an optimist, maybe there's, (laughs) there's hope that there are, there is sort of a battle within the organization, probably within many of these fossil fuel organizations. Uh, You know, there are people within those organizations that have children (laughs) and grandchildren and want to preserve the planet for them and have an enlightened view about this issue. And, you know, maybe there's the opportunity for some of those those saner voices to prevail. And the saner voices you mentioned in your book, we're not going to be able to ask the question, but I just want to give lip service that Senators John McCain and Lindsey Graham have been on board with climate science. They're maintaining a low profile, but I'm hoping that we can see them provide some kind of backstop in the leadership in the GOP here. So I want to actually race right to yesterday when Al Gore breathlessly departed from Trump Tower after his 90-minute meeting with the president. He pronounced it I mean, there were some cryptic things, and I just want that to be our wrap of the interview is, besides a a fleeting reference to what we can do by the book. But what he said on his way out was, it it was a very interesting meeting. That's all I've got to say to be continued. So what do you read from that scant bit of uh, disclosure? 
Well, you know, one fears that it's just a different version of the Chinese curse, right? May you live in interesting times. Um, Interesting doesn't always mean what we might hope it means. And one, you know, it's hard to know exactly what that means. Now, I am going to be slightly Pollyannish here. Um, And uh, what I'll note is, uh, again, another development over the last 24 hours, Jared Kushner, who is the husband, he's a, a media um, sort of magnate, magnate himself, um, and uh, he has, uh, owns a, uh, the New York Observer. Uh, he's the publisher of the New York Observer. He's the husband of Ivanka Trump. Ivanka Trump, over the last uh, several days, has very clearly uh, signaled to, you know, to the political class that um, she actually cares very much about climate change and, and, and she climate change is an issue that she hopes to, you know, have as part of her legacy under you know, within the context of her father's presidency, which is sort of interesting. And at the same time, Jared Kushner, her husband, has been publishing a series of very forward looking articles in the New York Observer. The yes. other day there was yes. an article about the wildfires um, down in the southeast and yes. how they're a harbinger of things to come. Right. It was a very solid article um, about the effects of climate change. And then just uh, yesterday uh, published a, a letter challenging sort of um, uh, climate change deniers. And uh, so if that, if we're reading the tea leaves, um, there may be an influential contingent within the Trump the brain trust. political world, brain trust, um, that, that does, you know, they're younger, <laughs> they're, they get it. The younger generation is much more likely to understand uh, the full you know, threat that climate change poses. They have children and they care about the lives of their children. And we can hope, right, or we can at least um, hope that perhaps some of these voices within his brain trust will moderate the impact of the Myron Ebels and, and the others who un- and undoubtedly are advising him, you know, to take a, a stance, a, a very pro-fossil fuel, anti-regulatory stance. Um, there's at least some challenge uh, coming from part of his brain trust uh, against yes. that. Okay, and that's that's the note we're going to leave it on is that where we're going to have those chances to coalesce with perhaps some of those individuals. What we can do is that's what what can I do? What we can do is it's the last chapter in your book, and yeah. I'm just uh, I'm pushing the book here, and I'm going to continue <laughs> to push it. And I uh, I know that climate scientists are doing everything not to say that we've reached the point of no return. So I'm I'm so glad that you gave us this time that you don't have to be on the show today. Michael <laughs> Mann, distinguished professor, he's an, a climate scientist from Penn State that's joined us today. Thank you so much for being on today's show. Uh, thank you, Claudia, and I'd be happy to come back and, and do it another time. Oh, thank goodness. I'll take you up on that. Be Very right good. back, folks. We're going to have on our Andy Zonfeld and Muslims for Progressive Values and Jordan El Grobly, founding director of Marcos. Be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guests are Jordan L. Grobley and Ani Zonefeld. Ani Zonefeld is founder and president of Muslims for Pro- Progressive Values. She's presided over the organization's expansion to include chapters and affiliates in 12 countries and 19 cities. She has organized numerous interfaith 
arts and music festivals participate in many interfaith dialogues and is a strong supporter of human rights and freedom of expression. She was born and raised Muslim from Malaysia and based out of L.A. Ani spent a good portion of her formative years in Germany, Egypt, and India as an ambassador's daughter. Her exposure to different politics, religions, and cultures has shaped her inclusive worldview. And returning to... Ask Leaders Jordan Al-Gwabli, an uh, award-winning social entrepreneur, writer, and founding director of Marcaz, the art center for the greater Middle East in L.A., where cool heads are trying to prevail amidst all of this. He's a curator of public programs. He's Moroccan and of French heritage, and he is... He has. I'm going to have to skip over the awards in the interest of time. Both sure. have been working together a great deal recently now that the anti-Arab... Muslim atmosphere is heating up. I'm asking them to take us behind the scenes for what has been happening along with our collective role in stemming this animosity. Both come to us today from Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Ani, and welcome back, Jordan. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you. Well, would you plot briefly, because I know I really squeeze you on this time here, just two massive topics to cover. Would you plot for us the trend of Islamophobia in the L.A. Orange County area as the presidential campaign became more vitriolic, starting with when Make America Great Again dog whistles were starting to blow? Um, If I may start... um This uh, whistleblowing is not a new thing. 39% of Americans in 2006 in a USA Today and Gallup poll, 39% of Americans, respondents favored requiring Muslims, including U.S. citizens, to carry a special ID. So what Trump did was successfully to make those 39% numbers come alive. It's always been there. This is a statistic from 2006. Wow. So we've been recognizing that we've we've been following these numbers in horror, and I've been speaking about these numbers and how we have been ineffective of reaching out to our non-American Muslim citizens and uh, family members. So we have been a failure. So I'm I'm want to reassure, and if, if this isn't a real shallow, hollow gesture, the the local law school dean, Dean Chemerinsky, at a synagogue. A Shabbat service last Friday talked about we all got to get our names on that list, just flood it. So it's just for, for one thing. I'm not sure if that gesture goes very far. But the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center has been reporting the uptick in hate crimes, but that's mainly, um, you know, it's sort of a generalization. It's in the aggregate. The Council on American uh, Islamic Relations in L.A. covered in the Times uh, uh, talked about some threats in the Islamic centers in Claremont, L.A. and San Jose. Are there some instances that we should know about? Well, um, the harassment has been uh, uh, on on the uptick, and since the election season, we've even us progressive Muslims have been receiving death threats through oh. through phone calls and social media and emails, just constant harassment for no good reason. Um, this is to be expected, and I do expect uh, that President Trump, President Elect Trump really um, does his part in tempering this harassment and these these hate crimes. But um, going back to the Muslim registry, I do encourage the non-Muslims to sign on because it is actually legal for the government to set up such a registry. We've had it during Bush time, and it's just a matter of them um, uh, turning it back on. Even if Obama does what he wants, does uh, turn it off, 
they can always start this new registry right away. So ACLU yeah, cannot uh, do much A number about of prominent it, Jewish leaders have come out uh, yes. and said, you know, we're going to assign it uh, rabbis, the ADL, and others. Uh, so they are speaking out um, about this. You know, uh, this, this harassment and discrimination against Arabs and Muslims has been going on, and it's intensified over the last few months in Southern California. Uh, women wearing uh, hijab were kicked out of a restaurant in Orange County. Um, men speaking Arabic to each other on Southwest flights were kicked off the plane. Uh, it, it's becoming, uh, you know, almost cartoonishly ridiculous that uh, the Arabic culture and Muslim religion are being demonized to the point where, you know, people's basic civil liberties are being violated. And, I mean, we're better than that. We're much better yeah. than that. We've, we've made so much progress in so many ways. Uh, you know, discrimination against uh, Jews and blacks uh, was, you know, uh, common currency in the U.S. in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, but, you know, this is the 21st century. It seems to me that what we're looking at is the, the Trump wave rolling back our Civility. Our, our, our civilities, and, right, to back to the 50s. And I guess there's a percentage of the American Caucasian population that misses the, quote, good old days. But, you know, it's too late. I mean, America's something like 40% non-white, uh, you know, quote, unquote, minorities, starting with the Native Americans. They're not the minority. They were the majority, and they were here in the first place. I mean, this is all coming up with Standing Rock now. I see all this as a uh, a power struggle between the people and those with the power, and the the powerless American white population has decided to vote for Trump because they want to feel in charge again or something. I don't know. Yeah, but, they see uh, a zero sum. You know. and so I've I've seen some effective YouTube videos that offer training on how we as bystanders could intervene where somebody is being dealt with in a hostile way for being. You know, outwardly for being uh, Muslim, the, the Green Dot program is a way of dealing with also, it's a template that deals with sexual assault. So I, could you quickly direct us to the name of that, that YouTube video or two that we can find? Because it was very effective in showing how, I just don't know what the title was. Do you know? Yeah, I say if you just Google you, uh, Green Dot, you'll find it. Um, there are several videos, actually. And, okay. Uh, there's also some Muslim self-defense uh, classes or self-defense classes for rape, potential rape victims that have been adapted for the purpose of uh, okay. women, Muslim women and hijabs. Okay, very good. Well, my guests here are Ani Zonefeld, Muslims for Progressive Values, and Jordan el Grabli, founding director of the Marcaz. They've given us some assignments here as I, unfortunately, I have to wrap up the show. This isn't even fair to you guys. I hope maybe you will come back. We'll spend some more time, perhaps in a couple of weeks and uh, we are actually, let's see, are you available next week? We can take some more time. Yeah, in we the, are. In I the, am. Okay, yeah, let's do that. It's so important of a topic to it's just so important. blaze over, yeah. I don't want to do that, and I do have some time I'm going to make, so I'm so pleased that you'll be back. So we're going to continue next week in the second half of Ask a Leader with Ani Zonefeld. With, uh, she's the founding president for Muslims for Progressive Values and Jordan O'Grab. Thank you so much for being on the show Thank today. You. You're welcome. Okay, all the best. Thank you. So I'm going to close the show. I'm going to have, as I said, Ani Zonfeld and and Jordan Grobley on, as well as a headhunter, Student Trottenberg, who will pull the curtain a bit for some glimpses of what recruitment looks like opposite the the job seeker, some counter-tutor lessons for us all. 
Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will talk to you next week. 